1951, a psychology professor at McGill University in Montreal ran an experiment. He paid a group of male students to be isolated, each in their own tiny sparse room. The experiment, designed to investigate the psychological effects of solitary confinement, was due to run for six weeks. Most of the subjects lasted only a few days. The longest managed a week. They very quickly lost simple cognitive functions. Some had visual hallucinations. One man saw nothing but dogs and spectacles in his room. Others had auditory hallucinations, hearing church organs and choirs. Other men truly believed they felt electric shocks and imagined excruciating physical sensations. Solitary confinement is classed as torture if it's used for more than a couple of weeks. Today, you'll hear from Albert Woodfox, a man who spent more time in solitary than anyone else in America. 44 years is a long time. And I don't know if I can find the words to even give the listener an idea of how horrible it is. It is to be in solitary confinement. You're listening to In Their Own Words, a podcast series from Amnesty International. My name is Albert Woodfox. I'm a member of the Angola Three. The overwhelming majority of my life was in prison. Uh, but my earlier years, right here in New Orleans. I spent a lot of time in the French Quarter. That was my hustle ground, you know, me and some of the guys I ran with. We would hustle tourists and stuff for money, odd works, waiter jobs. Working in the French market, you know, and stealing anything that wasn't they allowed, you know. I mean, that that was pretty much the life I had as a young man in this city. There wasn't a lot of things that inspired African-Americans at that time. I was just content with day-to-day survival. I didn't have dreams of wanting to be a, a doctor, a lawyer, or astronaut, or any of those things, because there were no images, at least none that I knew of, you know. So my dream was just to make it from one day to the next. I did everything from breaking cars, breaking houses, shoplift. I had a lot of encounters, you know, with the police as a juvenile. It's kind of hard to put in words, you know, as I look back on my life, you know, but it was kind of like a rite of passage in my neighborhood, you know. I think they refer to it now as street cred, you know. The more you encounter the police and you come out on the other side, not beaten or dead or whatever, you know, as earning a reputation as, you know. And so I was very good at being a petty criminal. And my mom, she fought valiantly, you know, trying to, five boys and one girl, she was trying to protect all of us by, on our own, you know. So I couldn't hear what she was trying to say, but I could hear the calling of the street. Well, eventually, you know, I sold drugs for a while. 
I robbed some places, which is what I went to prison for. I caught an armed robbery charge and I was sentenced 50 years. I escaped from the courtroom and made my way to, to Harlem, New York. I had a peripheral knowledge of the Black Panther Party, but I really had no interest. But then when I went to New York, I went to Harlem, and I saw the party members moving around in the, in the community, doing various things, selling papers. The one thing I noticed for the very first time, I didn't see fear, you know. There was always this look, uh, this you could sense fear in, 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 in black people, you know, fear of everything, fear of living, fear of dying, fearing, you know, they're not going to be able to make it from day to day, you know. But these men and women were like fearless, you know, and they were like moving through the community and they had such a command of themselves and what they were doing. And I noticed a couple of times that the police would be patrolling. And for the first time, I saw the fear in them. First time I'd ever encountered uh, women of the caliber of the Black Panther, you know, proud, knowledgeable, confident, very beautiful, you know. But every time, you know, I'd hit on one of them, they'd be talking about the revolution and protection for the people in the community and stuff, and they would invite me to come around by the office. Didn't really make that any impact on me at that time. And then eventually I got arrested, and uh, while I was in the Manhattan House of Detention, three or four members from the Black Panther Party were put on the till. You know, they would gather everybody around and talk about revolution and the condition of African Americans. It still didn't, uh, it didn't resonate with me. And then a guy came now from uh, one of the prisons upstate, and he had a book called A Different Drummer. And I read that book, and that was the beginning of who I am now and what I believe in. It was a fictional piece of work based upon facts. All the things I had heard, all of a sudden they started to resonate, they started to make sense. An awakening, you know. I began to realize that I was not a bad person, that I was a victim of a racist society and that it was almost preordained that I would wind up in prison. You know, up until that point, I, I never thought one person could make a difference. The state of New York, you know, the judge ruled I had to come back to Louisiana, and so I was returned to the Orleans Parish Prison. And then after that, then they sent me to Angola. The reason it's called Angola because it used to be a big slave plantation. The overwhelming majority of the slaves there came from the country of Angola in Africa. It's a plantation prison, very brutal. Conditions were hard, uh, the labor was mostly agriculture, grew a lot of, you know, food or 
various harvests, uh, the hardest being the sugar cane. Angola was designated the most violent prison in America. Almost every day someone was being either stabbed or beaten with an iron pipe or a bat or God was losing their life. They were being murdered you know, by all the inmates or by prison guards beaten to death. I witnessed a lot of brutality you know, in Angola. A lot of exploitation. I think the hardest for me was the watching these young kids, some of them 17, some of them just making 18, and guys raping them and then forcing them into a sex slave or market that existed in the population. You know. A lot of the scared people profited from the inmate-on-inmate crimes. Food and stuff that was designated for the inmate population, the security people were take it, stuff that should have been given to you, you had to buy it. Most of the time you went to the field and worked in the farm lines. So guys usually needed boots or raincoats or stuff like that. Yeah. And instead of them being issued, they were selling them to guys. When I went in the population, as I see, you know, I took a few days, looked around, see what was going on. And I started to just talk to guys, you know, about the conditions of the prison, the racism and the corruption of the administration and stuff. And uh, we were, you know, being treated basically like animals. A lot of guys knew me from the street and I had established a reputation. I was able to at least, uh, you know, have a talk with them. A lot of them didn't take me serious. They thought I was running some kind of you know, game. I think as time went on, they, you know, in the way I conducted myself and lived, they began to see that I was serious about what I was saying. I knew a Herman Wallace. He was pretty much doing the same thing, organizing, trying to educate guys and, and raise their level of consciousness. Of course, we sought each other out, found each other, and and formed a united front, and we started working together. June or July, 71. We knew that there would be informers amongst the guys we talked to. So what we did is we would take a football, and we'd go out on the football field, and be like we were playing football. And that way, security wouldn't be aroused, you know, a bunch of guys together at one time, you know. Sometimes it was different subjects, sometimes the same subject. I would say something Harmon would add to it. It was kind of like play off one another, you know. The principal argument was that they were human beings. They were not animals. They deserved to treat each other and themselves better, and they deserved to demand the same treatment from security. Not to be beaten and not to be raped and not to be exploited, starved, not to live in dormitories that wasn't fit for human uh, living. The only way they could get this was to come together as a training unity. And I think we made a lot of headway. You know? 
and eventually we said, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound, we should try to form a Black Panther chapter, which was unheard of, you know, inside of a prison. We wrote and asked the headquarters, say, yeah, do it if you can do it. So we formed the only prison branch of the Black Panther Party. We start demanding, not, you know, begging, but demanding change from the administration and in the time the state of Louisiana. A prime example, you know, I was working in the dining hall, the kitchen. Everybody working back in the kitchen worked one day on, one day off. The guys in the front in the dining hall, they were working like 16 hours a day, seven days a week. So I started talking to them about why the, the kitchen workers get one day on, one day off, and y'all work seven days a week, 16 hours a day. It's wrong. It's unfair. Showing them that just because they come to prison, they didn't lose their rights as human beings. So eventually, there was a work stoppage. Guys in the front, with the support of the guys in the back, wouldn't feed the inmate population. They demanded to see someone to talk about better working conditions. After that was resolved, uh, they found Brent Miller dead in a Pine One dormitory. Brent Miller was a prison guard. I think he was around 22, 23, somewhere. He had just started working at Angola. And uh, he worked on Pine Unit. I never had any contact with him because I lived on Hickory Unit. And beyond that, you know, everything I learned about him, I learned after the fact, after he had been found murdered. What happened is I went to breakfast that morning, I ate. Because it was my day off, you know, I could do whatever I wanted to do for that day. And I was on uh, Hickory Unit, which was the last unit on the walk. I was in Hickory 4. And I went down and, you know, got in the bed, went to sleep. I don't know how long it was. I heard the whistles blowing and security people screaming and hollering, get dressed, get on the walk. And so, you know, I got up and got out on the walk, and it was like, I see all these security men running up and down the walk in a panic. Some had machine guns and shotguns and all that, and they were threatening everybody. Nigga this, nigga that, nigga this. They made everybody form a line on the left-hand side of the walk and proceed up the walk towards where the dining hall was located. Eventually, when I got there, I was told to go in the clothing room. And when I got in there, I was forced to strip down naked. And my clothes were taken, and uh, I was threatened at gunpoint. And uh, they gave me some new uh, jeans and a shirt and told them to put me in the dungeons. So I actually was the first guy arrested for Brent Miller murder. They locked me up uh, April 17, 1972. So they moved us from the dungeon to the CCR cell block. So we must start making plans of how we would survive this. 
short-term plans, you know. Like I said, we had no idea <laughs> we were going to be in a CCR for decades in solitary confinement, you know. Albert and Herman were charged with the murder of prison guard Brent Miller in 1972. They always maintained their innocence, arguing that they were framed by the authorities due to their work fighting for prison reform in Angola. Along with fellow Black Panther Robert King, they became known as the Angola Three. Albert would go on to become America's longest-serving solitary confinement prisoner. In Angola prison, solitary confinement cells or closed-cell restriction units, as they're called there, measure two by three metres. They have a bed and a toilet and not much room to move. Inmates are kept there in isolation for 23 hours a day, and during their leisure hour, they would sometimes be allowed to exercise outside, but this would be inside a cage, measuring less than two by five metres. The sole purpose in solitary confinement is to break people, break their spirits, destroy their hopes, destroy their dreams, you know, destroy their abilities to be uh, productive human beings. We realized that uh, that we were going to survive being held in a cell for 23 hours out of a day without end in sight. And the one thing we couldn't do is become institutionalized, meaning that we couldn't turn inward to the prison and adapt prison principles, prison culture and stuff, that we had to have something different. We adapted principles, values, moral codes, uh, conduct that would allow us to live in society. Every time they put a new guy on the tier, you know, we could talk to him, let him know what we were about, what we trying to do, organize the tier. Look, you know, we don't attack one another. You know, we had rules, you know, we don't steal from one another. We, if you don't have, then we'll try to provide you with stuff, you know. We just organize, you know. You had 15 cells on the tier. Breakfast at a certain time, and they pick up the trays. At that time, they used to let everybody out at one time, the shower. Because of our activities and stuff, and then we started making stands and stuff. So when they came, they had to deal with the whole tiers rather than just one or two individuals. So they, they changed it from the whole tier coming out to three guys at a time, the shower. And then they eventually, just one guy. But you always got only one hour out of the cell every 24. Shower, you can walk up and down the hall. Eventually, they put TVs there. But these are toys. These don't distract from being confined to a nine by six area for 23 hours out of the 24 hour period with no end in sight. Over a period of time, the years start coming and you know, you just survive. I mean, there were so many personal changes in my routine and everything, but the institutional routine pretty much remained the same. 
you get to a point where the routines become like a big part of your life. You know, you start uh, organizing your day around routines. At least I did, you know. Most of the guys, they either went insane or, or they became canatonic, you know, they would draw into themselves. It's very difficult to try to fill your day. You try not to do the same thing the same way for long periods of time because it burns you out. So you try to be creative and, you know, you find things to do. With me, it was reading. You know, I became an avaracious reader. Sometimes I read as many as 12 books in a week. I was always reading, studying, trying to improve myself, trying to, uh, you know, maintain a philosophy that was geared towards society. We couldn't travel physically, but we could travel philosophically and intellectually from one end of the planet to the other. And of course, uh, cells that were meant to be debt chambers became schools and debate halls. We taught ourselves history, geography, math. We taught ourselves the law, and that became one of the many tools we used to bring about change in Angola. They didn't have any uh, black security guards working until after we filed a suit, and uh, the courts forced them to hire uh, black prison guards. Up to that point, you had about three, four hundred security people controlling uh, over 5,000 prisoners with inmate guards. Well, in theory, if you violate rules, but in reality, anytime you piss the security man off, he could lock you up in the dungeon. And unlike being out the dungeon, you don't get an hour out the day. You may get a 15-minute shower every other day or something like that. So it's even, it's even less time out of the cell. It was just an empty cell, no bunk or anything. You know, and they just give you a, a no underwear and then just a jumpsuit. Most of the time it was raggedy. And uh, so in order to find ways to pass the day, we came up with the idea of playing chess. And so we start taking the soap and, you know, using the soap, fashioning it into uh, something similar to a chess piece. And uh, we take the soap and draw chess boards on the floor of the cell and we play chess. Hours and hours and hours. Oh, Harmon, without doubt. King will argue with that, but I thought Harmon was the best. And then him, probably me, you know, but not by much, you know. They used to put our food on the floor and slide it under the door. We wanted them to cut food slots in the door or in the cell where they can set our food. We went on a hunger strike for that, and that lasted 45 days. And that I don't know, that almost killed me, you know. 
I mean, that's probably the hardest thing I ever did. Uh, you know, the whole time I was in the solitary confinement. But we held out. When they agreed to cut slots, they was like, well, we don't have the material right now. We got all the stuff and all that. So we said, okay, but we're not going to pull trays under the door. We'll stand up and hold our trays and eat through the bars. That lasted 18 months before they finally come. They cut the bars all over the prison. They came to RC last. And they cut the cells on our tier last. Since we were at the vanguard of the protest about uh, putting the food on the floor. I've seen more pain and suffering and destruction of, 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 of men by solitary confinement in, you know, in 10 lifetimes, you know. I've seen men reduced to uh, screaming. I've seen men uh, convert to being babies, you know, just curling in fetal positions and just laying there become canatonic, you know. Uh, I've seen men uh, beat their heads against the bars. I've seen uh, the brutality of security who have no training and they're unequipped to deal with guys when they have these breakdowns. And their solution is to lock them in the dungeon, which is just another form of solitary confinement. And usually they beat them and gas them. Uh, in this, you know, submission. Prisoners are left to survive this any way they can, and most of them don't. You know, I always say, you know, if, if, if what you believe in or the cause you're fighting for is a noble cause, you can carry the weight of the world on your shoulders. You know, with all the suffering I've endured, the physical, the mental, the emotional suffering, I've always tried to remember that what I'm doing is worth whatever the consequences I may have to suffer. You know, I took a stand a long time ago, and uh, it has sustained me for the last 40-something years. I was once asked uh, if I had a chance to change anything, would I? And I wouldn't, you know, I, because I think in order for me to become the, the man I am now, I would have had to go through all of this. I would have had to, to endure the suffering and the pain. Now, I've always felt this though, what I was doing, what I believed in, what I was fighting for. Uh, was, was worth it, whatever price I had to pay. The only time I ever thought I would go insane was when my mother passed away. I think that's the only time that I came close to breaking. 
the claustrophobic attack became real, real bad. You know, I mean, um, I'll never forget the day I learned my mom had passed away and, you know, I was in a state of grieving and and I remember what, I went, lay down and went to sleep and I woke up and the ceiling was like right there, you know. And I was sweating, you know, telling myself, don't panic, don't panic, you know, stay calm, stay calm, you know. Close your eyes, don't look. Eventually, you know, the cell kind of like got back to a nine by six instead of a matchbox, you know. And I don't know for I don't know a couple of months, maybe three, four months. I kind of like was just existing, you know. A lot of the guys noticed there was a difference. I would just tell mom, just you know, I'm having a bad day, you know. That was probably the, the biggest loss I ever have in life. And eventually the pain, you know, the pain never, never went away, you know, uh, but it became manageable, you know, the loss of my mom. I don't know if I have the adequate words to describe what it's like to be in a state of where nothing you do it's going to change your situation. I mean, I went almost 20 years without any disciplinary reports, and it made no difference when I went before the review board. No matter how much you change, it makes no difference. You know, none of us had any idea. I mean, King did 29 years before he got out, finally got his case overturned and won his freedom. Herman did 41 years and died three days later from liver cancer. But he died free. He was intelligent, a quick learner. He had that stubborn streak in, in him, you know, when he came to uh, a social issue. He was a good comrade, but he was a great friend. And I truly miss him. I think about him often. The world lost a true giant. You know, I used to call him Mr. Fix-It, you know, because he used to hook up all kind of gadgets. The, you know, fix this or fix that, you know. I still think of that old man a lot, you know. You know, I never lost hope that I'd go free. But there was also this voice inside of me saying, you're going to die in, 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 in a cell, you know, you're going to. But, you know, emotionally, that's what I was telling myself. But intellectually, I was convinced that I was going to die in prison, you know. But, you know, as you know, things turn out different, you know. Albert Woodfox, who spent more than 43 years in solitary confinement, more than anyone else in the United States, has been released from the Angola prison in Louisiana. 
Would Fox walk free on Friday after he entered a plea of no contest to charges of manslaughter and aggravated burglary of a prison guard more than four decades ago? Prior to Friday's settlement, his conviction had been overturned three times. Wood Fox and the late fellow Angola Three member Herman Wallace were accused in 1972 of stabbing prison guard Brent Miller. They always maintained their innocence, saying they were targeted because of their attempts to address horrific prison conditions by organizing a chapter of the Black Panther Party in prison. The case was so old, a lot of evidence were lost. Pretty much all the witnesses that had passed away. So the state was in a, in a situation where they couldn't retry me, but they couldn't, you know, dismiss the case. My lawyers worked out a plea. It's called Nola Contender, which you, you're not pleading guilty to that crime, but you're pleading guilty to the fact that the state has enough evidence to bring you to trial. So it's kind of like both sides got what they want, and I got my freedom. I went to court my birthday the day I turned 69. A lot of my supporters was there, and my brothers was there. The plan was I would plead a NOLA contender and then leave there and go straight to the jail and get my stuff and leave. It's some kind of file up with the paperwork. Everybody was getting nervous. The lawyer was coming in there like, this is not what we agreed to. Mr. Woodfire should be free. I was getting agitated. So the warden of the jail told him, you know, let his brother come in there and just stay in here with him until it's time. So me and Michael just sat there and we talked and stuff about, mostly about going to see Mount and, uh, about an hour or so later, the paperwork finally came through. You know, I signed, signed out and stuff, and, you know, we walked out the door, and I could see all the A3 supporters and family members and stuff, and I could hear them cheering and clapping and stuff, and my knee buckled, you know. And it wasn't obvious because my brother Michael, you know, he's like, I got you, I got you. He grabbed my arm, he said, I got you, you know. I got you, you know. And uh, we got in this car and we drove off and we stopped by eight three supporters and reporters asked me, you know, what my plans were. And I'm like, well, I'm going to say goodbye to my mama. You know, I've been denied that right to say goodbye and stuff. Drove to New Orleans. Got to the grave, it was closed. So we left there and went to where my sister was buried. I said goodbye to her, you know. And the next day, bought some roses. We went and said goodbye to my mama, you know. It was a very, very heavy burden lifted off my shoulders. Because even though I know it wasn't my fault, I still felt it though somehow I had let my mama down, you know, by not saying that final goodbye. It still haven't sunk in. You know, sometimes I expect them to knock on the door. 
and you know, mistakes been made or we come we got a new charge or something like it there, you know. So you know, I I don't have an answer for that right now, you know. Uh, as it's like when people ask me what it's like to be free. I don't I don't have an answer. You know, it's, it feels great to be able to move around, but I didn't have to make a mental, you know, adjustments to being free because here I've always been free for many, many years since I was in my 40s. If there's been an adjustment for me, it's been physical, you know, being able to walk beyond nine feet, you know, uh, you know, being able to, you know, just, you know, I love the rain, you know, things like that, you know. And like I say, you know, it's 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 still too soon for me to give a definitive answer on what, what it feels like to be free. But things that speed it up, you know, there's faster pace in society than they was in, in you know in prison. Things happen real fast. Still working to kinda of like slow the world on a little bit, at least in my head, you know. Every morning I go outside and just sit there by myself. There's some a lot of squirrels and and birds and stuff, you know, this real nice neighborhood, real quiet. And, you know, those kind of things there, you know. Make me think about what it, you know, what I have now as to as to being in a solitary confinement. You know, it's great. I mean, the relationship I'm building with my family. You know, that's probably the most solid thing in in life right now. To them, I'm just papa. You know, my great grandbabies and my grandbabies. I'm just papa. You know, to my daughter, I'm daddy. You know, so. I think that has meant a lot to her because she's been without dad for so long. And the same thing with my grandkids, you know. This is where I belong, you know. This is where I belong. That was Albert Woodfox in Louisiana. He continues to campaign against solitary confinement in the U.S., and remains a committed activist. In the final year of his presidency, Barack Obama asked the Department of Justice to review the use of solitary in US prisons. The investigation recommended that use of solitary is rolled right back. Whether this happens under the Trump administration is another matter. You've been listening to In Their Own Words, a podcast from Amnesty International. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the series on iTunes or your podcast provider, or follow us on SoundCloud. And do rate and review us on iTunes. We'd be really grateful. I'm Anna Baccarelli, and the series is produced by Sam Lawler. Hold up. 